So, Evan, we talk a lot about the junk poets on this podcast. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, I don't have a sense of like how many people have listened from episode one and how many people are just jumping in, you know, episode 12 or something and are like, what? (laughs) It's probably right to introduce them. It's not a super self-explanatory name. Yeah. So where did the junk poets come from in Questlandia? I mean, I think the first time we used the term was when we were brainstorming titles for the game. And we were trying to come up with a way to uh, bring down the tone. <laughs> <laughs> it's like no high fantasy, no low fantasy. We want gutter fantasy here. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were trying to think about it being like a little bit more, I mean, punk is the wrong word, but like younger, more scrappy, you know. So the idea of the junk poets were these young people in a ruined society surrounded by the junk and detritus and artifacts of the past. Mm-hmm. They yeah. make it into poetry. And like we could have called them, you know, bearers of the solstice or protectors of the library of the sun. Yeah, these are good. Yeah, but like they're low fantasy. To some, They're like middle fantasy names. <laughs> <laughs> We got to properly situate the height of our fantasy. So our episode today is going to be all about the junk poets and how they got to where they are today and all of the work that we still need to do to figure out who they are. And importantly, we're going to look at where the story of the junk poets overlaps with the mechanical function of them. Yeah. Let's I like that, but lower. Say. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> All right, now I'm jazzed. So Evan, Questlandia 2 introduces the idea of the junk poets. They're these people who are living in a collapsed society of their own, and they are using tools of people who came before them to investigate collapsed societies. Right. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. So what are our goals? Like, why, why, why the junk poets? Why do we have them in our game? And uh, what are some of the things that we hope to do with them? So... In looking at making a sequel to Questlandia 1, I think one of the first things in our mind was Questlandia 1 is great at making worlds, and then those worlds don't get the the, the love they deserve. Mm-hmm. For one thing, it's hard to share your experiences of those worlds with other people, partly because the game isn't played much, you know, it's a little obscure, and partly because it's so disconnected from any other game of Questlandia. Totally different world, totally different cast, totally different style of play. Yeah. It's not like you can say, even though every game of Questlandia is different, you're always playing a planeswalker. You're people who can travel between these planes. Yeah. That's a really helpful thing in talking about the fiction of Magic the Gathering. It's mm-hmm. like you have this, you know, basic underlying story that connects all the 
endless amount of story craziness that goes on. I'm Nicholas Bolas, junk poet. You sure are. <laughs> Did I get that right? N- n- uh, Nikolai Bolai? Nikol. Nikol. I think only one of Borealis. them is pluralized. Okay, <laughs> continue. <laughs> uh, so, one of the first ideas is to put an emphasis on the travelers who are going to this world. We talked about it being like a hub world, a place that everybody goes to when they play this game, like a a people and a world that everybody knows about and can use to describe their journeys across all the games, right? The hub world is the failed society of these junk poets. That's one of the principal goals of the junk poets, or rather of the unifying sort of emphasis on the travelers and where they're coming from and what they're getting out of these worlds. So it's sort of creating a shared fiction and a shared language of play. Right. So that when anybody sits down for a game of Questlandia, and obviously so many people will because it will be the most popular role-playing game I think ever played, mm-hmm. people will have <laughs> <laughs> people will have this shared language for talking about their games. Yeah. Thousands of people. I mean, I've been to conventions Maybe where millions. people are coming up and asking what's Questlandia, and it's a little tricky to answer because it's like, it could be anything. <laughs> yeah, but now you'll be like, you don't know about Questlandia? Where have you been? That's right. It's like- yeah, I'll put my hand on their face and gently push them away. <laughs> <laughs> you like that. <laughs> All right, so- um... <laughs> My own egotistical dreams aside. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so there's one more thing. Yeah. The junk poets, you know, aren't just another level to keep track of. They are there to uh, reinforce what you're doing mechanically in the game. You know, in Questlandia 1, you're drawing cards and rolling dice. It would be cool if somebody was doing that. The original idea of the junk poets is... You know, if we're creating journals of our worlds, they're the ones writing in those journals. Yeah. And if we're rolling dice to find something out, they're rolling those. So I'm curious, like, do other role-playing games do this, either explicitly or implicitly, that you can think of? Like, use sort of the tools of the game. I mean, I, I can I can think of ways that role-playing games really try to not make the tools of the game break with the fiction but i don't think that offhand i can think of a role-playing game that tries like so explicitly to say you know you as the player are the junk poet and you are rolling you know you are mapping out this uh atlas yeah i'm sure there's people listening who are screaming ideas at their (laughs) computer but uh i don't None are leaping to mind that use it that explicitly. I mean, I'm big into using the materials that you're gaming with as a way to build immersion rather than get out of it. I believe that the original Dungeons and Dragons, part of the appeal is the strange dice that you're rolling that makes it feel like you're doing something more arcane. Mm. And there uh, are games, I mean, there are games that really use the tools really use their tools to good effect. I mean, like Dread uh, or Starcrossed, using like the Jenga tower to create 
tension around either like horror or as in Starcross, like the building sexual tension. Mm-hmm. And that's like a really effective tool. But the sort of the most explicit way of using that would be literally like, we're a bunch of people building a tower. <laughs> Unbuilding one. <laughs> you know, Norlandia tried to get at that a little bit. It's still not totally explicit, but it's getting closer when you're using a cork board and pinning up clues to your case and tying string together when you actually are finding clues and connecting the dots. Yeah. Uh, although it's still not explicitly like your character takes out their pin. Detective Dan <laughs> looks at the murder board. Yeah. But I mean, if you were looking at the junk poets of the Norlandia world, they wouldn't be those characters, right? They would be the investigators looking at all these investigations and keeping track of everything. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, it kind of works. So the goal for the junk poets and having them in the game is first creating this shared language of play where people who play Questlandia can sort of talk about the game more easily and like talk about a unified fiction of the game. And second, to uh, really try to marry theme and mechanics and have this game where when you're rolling dice, when you're writing in the map, you are both doing that as a player, but like literally there is like a, an in-game fictional justification for every mechanical thing you do. Does that right. sound right? Yeah, right on. Cool. All right. We got goals. <laughs> we got goals. What's next? Well, I mentioned earlier that one of those metaphors that the junk poets might serve is that when you're writing in your journal, they're writing in the journal. However, that all got thrown out when a few months ago we decided against journals because journals are of a fixed length and our travels in the other worlds are not. It could vary. We want to have short worlds and long worlds and we don't want to leave these physical journals where you only filled out two pages of it, right? That is true. Whatever it is. No journals. No journals. Those are behind. Yes. They got problems. Yeah. However, those journals had already been a part of the junk poet fiction. Our story was that these junk poets found a library of worlds. And all these books that describe the worlds, those are the journals that you'd be filling out as you play. Mm-hmm. If we're not using journals, then that library doesn't make sense anymore. If that library doesn't make sense anymore, it throws the whole story of the junk poets into question. So we've been discussing a whole bunch of different alternatives. Do you remember any of them? Oh, gosh. I mean, I can't think of when we first started to talk about Questlandia 2, but it was at least a year and a half ago. And I remember some of the early, earliest ideas. I remember like a much more sci-fi yeah. setting where the Jung poets were on this like psychedelic spaceship. It's still got appeal. I know, I know. I think you really like you really like the psychedelic spaceship. Uh, I remember it was sort of a sentient ship that would pick people up from these different worlds, and the ship always had to remain in balance. So it always had to kind of have the same number of people or same number of ideas, and it would drop people off in worlds and pick people up in worlds, and it would kind of go where it, you know, like magic do as you will type mm-hmm. of deal. We also dabbled in like slightly uh, more realistic sci-fi, talking about 
traveling to worlds where just the length of time that it takes to travel between the stars meant that you're visiting worlds thousands or tens of thousands of years later. There's new societies that maybe just have little echoes of what you once remember. Mm -hmm. And I remember even, I think one of the most recent ideas, like definitely in the past few months, I had like called you while I was driving and I was like, what if the junk poets are dead? Yeah. And then we actually liked that idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we talked about it for a long time, but I'm a little bit glad that maybe we didn't devote an entire episode to it. And we talked about different variations of that, the idea of them being from a different plane and visiting, or them being somewhere in between life and death, like in a sort of trapped, unconscious form, drifting between these worlds. And then eventually we had decided that like the real world like analogy for that was that they were like millennials but like cosmic millennials like trapped between adulthood and childhood (laughs) couldn't find jobs (laughs) (laughs) there's also the museum lackey idea the idea that there's an all-powerful galactic museum collecting artifacts from different worlds we are the freelance employees you know millennials we can't get a nine to five and uh we perhaps have chances to undermine the organization but we're working under it and that that was also one idea that we'd been throwing around to kind of uh tackle head on um just some of the like implicit stuff that comes up around like colonialism when you're talking about people going to worlds that aren't theirs and yeah. like foisting their own assumptions onto those worlds and taking notes, maybe taking things like physically stealing artifacts. Right. Um, and we don't know how much of those things are going to be a part of the game, but that was one idea. That's sort of leaning into the sinister side of it. All right. So we had all these ideas. We were brainstorming. And at one point we're like, okay, let's look at the, the sheets that we made for the Junk Poets for that first play test, you know, 20 episodes ago, whenever we played it with our friends. Mm -hmm. And so we pulled all those out. They're full of archetypes for each junk poet. There's investigators and oracles and plant keeper. And all of them had these little descriptions. Uh, And rereading those, well, it felt kind of like coming home. It was like, ah, these are so nice. (laughs) Do you want to read a couple? Sure. Yeah. So, okay. One of my favorites is the ingredient seeker. And this is the description of the ingredient seeker. In famine, you save. In plenty, you make life a delight. You know delicious secrets, hidden places, and forgotten ways. Because of you, our food is not just a concern of survival, but an expression of love. It's so sweet. That's the ingredient seeker. I want them to be in the game. I know. It's a really, it's nice. It's ni- nice words. All right, let's do one more. Okay. Pick which one. We have the investigator, the empath, the exchanger, the oracle, the plant keeper, oh, and the plant keeper. What else is good? What's the empath? Let's see the empath. The empath. When conflicts become heated, people turn to you to 
arbitrate, to understand. You see through the circumstance, you understand the currents of emotion that carry us. You help us understand ourselves and each other. It's so nice. They're all nice. These are nice people. Yeah. I like that. These are the people I want to be. That's what it felt like rereading these. Yeah. So we're like, no, they can't be dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so we decided to bring the Junk Poets back in a way that is much closer to this first, you know, these first character sheets that we wrote up. And so then the obstacle was, okay, there is no longer a library. So let's take a look at what our materials are. We've got the map of the worlds that we're filling out. We've got the symbol reader, like a compass rose of very different symbols. And we have some custom dice that reflect sort of the primary symbols. So PAX was coming up. Mm -hmm. We needed to make a playable prototype of the game, show to some people there. And so we threw together a version where our junk poets are on a boat. Yeah. Oh, boy, did we throw together. (laughs) (laughs) And it's such a bad feeling because we worked so much. Like, we were working on this every day leading up to PAX, and Mm -hmm. it still just didn't quite get there. It's like a lot of work to make a role-playing game. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's, there's a big gap between having the ideas that you want and then writing them out in their entirety so that they can actually be played. Oh, and then there's even a leap between, you know, writing them out in such a way that they can be played by us versus, you know, getting them to a point where they can be played by other people. So we slammed them onto a boat. Yeah. And we said, these symbols, these are the constellations in the sky that we use to navigate our vessel. And that's, I mean, the, the boat metaphor kind of emerged because both, you know, we already have this map that the junk poets are using and then this compass. And both of those work really well to some like vast body of sand or water, something where people are trying to explore and all around them is a little bit, uh, you know, murky. Yeah, we talked about them sailing into the mists into a strange part of the ocean that leads them to places that they could never get to without sort of this arcane tool set. Mm -hmm. It felt pretty good. Writing up the descriptions of how these things work, consulting your symbol reader to find the direction that you point your ship in. And we have these ideas bubbling about how the ship itself might be an extraordinary craft. Yeah, so leading up to PAX, we wrote up all of these notes that I think are actually quite lovely. And this way of framing the voyage of the junk poets, that's like, you're all on this vessel, you're sailing into the mists, you have this compass, two symbols burn brightly on the compass. And that became what we have been using as the first two roles of the game, where, you know, in the version of Questlandia we've been running for a while, you roll dice, you consult the symbol reader, you have two symbols you can go to, and those are the two potential starting kingdoms that the players get to choose between. Right. But now we have this really kind of lovely narrative justification for it. 
you know, two symbols burn brightly. One looks like a hammer. The other one looks like a turtle. (laughs) Are we going to sail towards kingdom toil or kingdom? Toidle. So the players, you know, our group picks kingdom toidle and (laughs) off we go into the misty dark. And it's been very, it's like very evocative. (laughs) (laughs) I feel it. Yeah. I feel myself being evoked. Are you like pulled? You pulled towards the toidle? I am. (laughs) I grab hold of the ship's wheel, turn hard to toidle. (laughs) Toidle ho! (laughs) And off we go. So the other thing we did in throwing together a version for PAX is uh, very quickly, completely revolutionize our idea of the junk poets as a metaphor, not just for rolling the stuff in the game, not just for playing it, but also as a metaphor for running the game, for being a game master and being in that role. In Questlandia 1, we take turns being the star character in the scene. Mm-hmm. You know, your character will be sort of the spotlighted player. In Questlandia 2, we, we are attempting with this version is making it so we take turns being the game master of a scene. The person who calls for the scene, comes up with the idea for it, and then is in charge of the NPCs and the world and the drama of the scene. And it can feature any number of characters, even your own character if you're running the scene. And this is like, I just want to try to explain this. Like, I I want to try to explain it in like a neat little bubble. This is us trying to use the junk poets, not only as a way to justify, like, when you're rolling and when you're writing something down and recording it in the game, but to use the junk poets as like GM tools, is suggestions for what you can do in this in a scene and how you can help other players. So do you want to like give an example of what that might look like, like using a certain junk poet archetype? Yeah. So taking, for example, the investigator archetype of junk poet, we've created a sheet for them that comes with um, a set of generic rules for how to GM. So we've designed these sheets for each junk poet, and the sheets have a lot in common with each other because they all have some general advice for how to manage a scene and like run the game. So they do things like tell you to ask questions of the other players, like, what's your plan? What do you want to do next? How are you going to get closer to your goal? What do you see or feel or smell? And those are pretty common, like, you know. RPG questions. It's part of what makes the game work, is that you know where your player characters are coming from, you get a sense of what they want in the scene, and then you can craft the world around them to explore those. So it also comes with some advice of the kinds of things you can reveal, like new locations or NPCs or details of the setting, like what people are wearing or, you know, a norm. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, kind of standard RPG stuff. However, this is the investigator junk poet. 
So they have a few special ones added onto their lists. Questions like, do you believe what you're hearing? Or revealing things like a secret that an NPC is hiding or something suspicious happening in the scene. So the idea is that you will be being a game master with a specific flavor. And that's even more emphasized in calling for a scene, because each one of these junk poets has multiple scene types that they can call for, but they're all in the flavor of the archetype. And so this like flips the idea of there being, it's less like there's a spotlight player, which sometimes could be a little bit boring, or you felt like, wait, I'm in the scene too, but I'm not really going to reap any like mechanical benefits from the successes. I'm not going to be harmed by the failures of the scene. This flips it to like any number of player characters might be in the scene, but it's sort of framed around the junk poet GM and like what the flavor of this particular scene is. So rather than like, hey, I want to call for a scene with uh, the Toidle King, Mm -hmm. you would be like, I want to call for, I think, like an investigation scene. And Mm -hmm. all of these people are going to be in it, but Evan's junk poet is going to be asking sort of the questions and leading the scene. Does that sound accurate? Yeah. And this isn't like a total undoing of Questlandia 1's shared responsibilities of being a GM. It's more like just having somebody who, you know, the buck stops here. Like they're the person who will make the final call, but they are welcome to discuss any of this stuff with everybody at the table and ask for ideas and, you know, test the waters before making it true. They can say, I'm interested in an investigation scene where we're, you know, hunting through the Toidle King's court, trying to find evidence of his next policy. You know, and I was thinking your character would be in it and maybe mine. How does that sound? And it also leaves the opportunity to call for like, you know, if two people have really been gearing up to have kind of a quiet relationship focused slice of lifey scene. Mm-hmm. You know, we're uh, baking bread together. Uh, that may be a scene led by the empath junk poet. This gets at one of the one of the goals of the whole game, which was to be able to have more quiet scenes, to have slower paced or more interpersonal scenes that didn't fit in Questlandia One. Questlandia One was always go 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 go. Everything's falling apart. Uh, you need to get your goal quick. You only have three scenes to do it, so make them count. Yeah. And if we're spending a lot of time in a world, it can be really nice to have those one-on-one scenes where we're learning more about, you know, the quiet or intimate moments of a society rather than just the most dramatic and dire moments. So that was the dream. (laughs) (laughs) So how did we do you know, I mean, eventually it was like, hey, here we are at PAX. <laughs> how how did we do in our goals? <laughs> well, these were two-hour slots. Mm-hmm. And um, we weren't quite done. <laughs> we were, like, lugging a printer into our booth and typing up the final junk poet (laughs) rules on a laptop while people were asking about our stuff. I'll say that, I mean, it sounds like between both, we each ran a a play test. Mine, 
I don't want to say mine didn't go so well, but I was I was pretty ill prepared for mine. I was not able to like do all the printing in time and I was kind of reading from my computer and it really, you know, in a game that relies so much on like all of these shared materials and people being able to kind of like hold them and own them and consult them, me being the computer keeper, it was like being a game master hiding behind, you know, my GM screen, Yeah. but in a game where I was also asking everybody else to be the GMs too, without <laughs> giving them the materials that they needed to succeed. So mine, mine was, uh, I felt bad for the players because I felt like I was really asking a lot of them in this super unfinished game. We, uh, we ran out of time. <laughs> we didn't quite manage it in time. But these were also short slots. So for my playtest, I did have the printouts. I had some junk poets ready and I handed those out. People chose them. But we ended up only getting through the world creation part of the game. Uh, we created a great world. That wasn't. That's not one of the parts of the game that seems like it's in such a bad place. That said, even though we didn't get a chance to test out running scenes as your junk poets... In my playtest, everybody was fascinated with the idea of them. They were bursting with ideas of how how these junk poets could tie into the worlds, how they related to the characters, and especially how the junk poets could change based on the stories of one world and bring those changes to the next world, have mechanical impacts that carry over from one world to the next. People loved that. And uh, I have pages of notes of <laughs> uh, all the different things they were excited about in that possibility. So it sounds like to me, people, you know, don't want the junk poets to just be sort of this static sheet that feels like just like a GMing tool. It sounds like they wanted junk poets to be this next like another type of character essentially they can learn and grow be personified is that accurate i'll share my favorite bit of feedback from the whole discussion we had after okay. the game, which was somebody just saying i just want there to be some space on this sheet where i can write stuff <laughs> i loved it because that's not it's so unspecific but also exactly right right it's just like I want to have some ownership over this. I want to be able to change it in some way. Almost anything would be okay. But like, give me a little, give me a blank line so yeah. I can write some stuff. Yeah, because right now the junk poet sheets as they stand, uh, they don't have space for any, you don't know what your junk poet's name is. You know, they're really not turned into a, a person on this sheet. So this brings us to a very tricky part of the design process because this is you know the part where to test it out properly we need to play through multiple worlds together for something you want to test a hundred times uh it's tricky when the proper testing takes days and days of revisiting worlds l gradually learning about your junk poets having them accumulate scars and memories and bringing those to new worlds and seeing how they interface potentially bringing them to new groups of players potentially 
putting your junk poet down between a world and picking up a different one, but still having the one that you took carry on some memories. This is the work that's ahead of us. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to know how specific or vague the junk poets like arc, like arc of, you know, of growth should be because if we wanted to tie it back in closer to something we've done in Questlandia 1, which is like the idea of ownership, like yeah, your junk poet owns slug festivals. Like, what does it mean then to bring slug festivals into your new world? You're I right. think that's something it's, it seems funny. Yeah. But I think it's something we're pretty strongly trying to avoid in the game. You know, I have brought slug festivals to this new world. It, I don't know. Yes it's a little no. hammy, but like, you know, I. You know, I obviously I don't want to be like, and then we have slug festivals here too. But there is some appeal to the idea of like you walk into an inn and there's a bard singing and he's singing a fantastic story about a slug festival. And everybody knows the words to this one. It's an old favorite. And Oh, so you're imagining maybe like almost like a much more subtle like shared consciousness like all worlds are connected type of thing i want those kind of echoes between the worlds not not so much that it feels like ah here we are again another slug festival world how's this one gonna have a slug festival (laughs) but the idea that there is a stronger connection between these worlds than well than in the original questlandia is part of the whole reason and appeal of questlandia 2 for me and I think that ranges from the less significant, you know, a bar song, to having a gradual reveal of a more significant overlap. That could look like, you know, a threat that carries over between the worlds, something that's consuming multiple societies. It could look like, you know, the societies having a growing awareness of the junk poets themselves and knowing that they're being observed. It feels spicy. It feels good. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that I want to draw all these stories together. Yeah. So one thing that I already kind of see happening here is that you sit down at the table and right now there's a lot of paper. <laughs> uh-huh. There's the map. There's the symbol reader. There's your in-world character sheet, which at this point is pretty small. We've like reduced them down to a pretty, you know, it's like almost an index card size sheet. And yeah, then, the smaller the better, in my opinion. Um, and then there's the junk poet sheets. So this is essentially a game that right now asks you to have two character sheets on top of whatever other GMing advice the game is going to give. For just like, you know, when you read the rule book, like... How do you speak in this game? What's expected of you as a player slash GM? Because it's GMless, so you're both. Um, so I'm going to say that's like now three levels of like yeah. the rule book telling you how to play the game and what your responsibilities are. That feels like potentially a lot of, well, just a lot. Uh, and our goal for this is to like make this, less overwhelming in terms of what 
what we're used to seeing in a role-playing game and not more. Yeah. Do you have thoughts about that? I mean, simplifying it down, I mean, I would call that one of like the columns of game design in general. <laughs> like when you come up with ideas, they get added to the table. And then part of the process is simplifying, condensing things, figuring out what's crucial and limiting it to those. I will say that part of the reason that we have all these papers on the table is that I feel like we're trying to undo one of the least accessible parts of the games, which is the rule book, page turning, rule hunting. There's a table somewhere for how your armor weight impacts your carrying capacity. But uh, uh, wait, I have another page where I took notes of the good pages of the rule book that we should flip to, that kind of thing. By having the basic advice of how to run a scene in front of every player, the hope is that that means less times that we're saying like, wait, wait, pause. Can we look this up? Yeah. And that role, you know, the GM in a typical game often has that responsibility of flipping through the rule book and finding the right rule. So this is a way to spread that out. So everybody has a reference sheet in front of them. So rather than, okay, let's flip to page 97, where we see how investigator scenes work, you have this sheet in front of you. The So one way for things to get simpler is to just have fewer things, for sure. But another way for things to be simpler is for them to echo, like if the way that you roll dice is always the same, if the rules for calling a scene are always the same, it makes it so even if we have 10 scene types, as long as you understand that the rules across all those types are very similar, once you know one, you know them all. Yeah. And that's been something that we've been trying to like, as we've been talking about Questlandia 2 and the way that we've designed our past games, I keep using a specific word for it. Like we start to make a rule and then I'm like, parallelism yeah <laughs> which may not be the right word but it's like this idea that like because we haven't we've been kind of bad about this in past games and it's it's tricky like i don't want to punish us too hard but in you know in norlandia it might be like this is the way scenes work when you roll you you know on these on these roles, your character is impacted with a condition. On these roles, you give into your weakness. On these roles, this. But if you roll this, then turn to page 47, where there's this new role. Only applies in this instance. Right. And we're trying to just, like, unify that. Right. I feel like with Good Dog, Bad Zombie, our board game, we worked really hard for another strategy of simplification which is tying the mechanics to theme. If the rules make sense, if they just seem to flow from the narrative of it, then it doesn't take so much overhead to remember them. Yeah, which is why which is why immediately this like boat metaphor felt really good. We're like, "Oh yeah, two constellations burning brightly above and you're going to sail towards one." That makes it really easy to remember and you don't have to look up to be like, "Okay, how many symbols do we roll?" And are we deciding which one? And at what point do we decide? Like all those little things can get wrapped up in a story. And remembering a story is a lot easier than remembering 
rules in the abstract. I mean, it's the way, it's the same reason why when you are playing a game like Code Names and it's time to explain the rules, you get to explain it within the theming of you all being a bunch of secret agents. Yeah. Like, that's totally incidental, but but it's not. <laughs> it's so important. It is. But we're going to have to keep revisiting this over and over, I think, as we test out different ways that your junk poets can grow, the way that they carry stuff home from worlds, the way that they rebuild their own world, uh, the way that the maps you're drawing of all the different worlds you have been to get preserved and influence each other. It's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. And the hope is that it's just a very slow build where every step makes sense within the story and doesn't feel like another thing to remember it should feel like, uh, you know, it should feel like a gift. You should be like, oh, this is going to be great, the way that this slots in. Yeah. It should never feel like a chore. <laughs> so what do you feel like our very next, like, this week? What do you feel like our work is? Um, I think we need to hammer down some of these ways that that like world to world mechanics could go. Uh, there's a lot of different perspectives on them and like possibilities for where those lie. And we should come up with just a brainstorm for each one of those categories. Like how can the junk poets evolve and grow up and change? Mm -hmm. How can the worlds impact each other? What kind of threats could cross over? And, from those brainstorms, we should say what feels best. Like what feels like that's a real part of Questlandia 2. It just feels right. And then come up with a minimum viable rule set <laughs> where those are a part of the game. Where there's a slot on the sheets to record them or some kind of mechanic to make those into place. And it's okay if the mechanics are clumsy at first. But then we've got we've to do some campaign playtesting. <sighs> I'm ready. Feels exhausting, though. It's like... Get hyped. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that I feel like ready to be done with designing Questlandia 2, but I do feel ready to be <laughs> done with this part. Like, this part where there's still so much mushiness and so much uncertainty. Uh, you know? I mean, so much of game design, it just feels like we take... One step forward, two steps back. I mean, maybe it's two steps forward, one step back. Because we are always inching ahead, but there's always that step back when you start to kind of hone in on a mechanic that's going to be the final thing. I think we're further along than it feels like. You know, this is what happened when we were no longer sure about the junk poets, when we abandoned journals. And so we brainstormed and it felt like we were writing the mushiness, right? Like... Who knows what the junk poets are? They're all dead people. And then we looked back at the work we've already done and looked at the old sheets for the junk poets and found out that, oh, we've already laid lane. We, we've, <laughs> we've already put down a foundation that's strong for how these characters can be. And we can rely on that and build from there. So this part feels mushy, 
But at the same time, I think we're going to be looking at the work we've already put into the Junk Poets and to the maps, and we'll find a way to do it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's giving me a renewed sense of purpose. So thank you. Um, So Evan, what do you think our next episode will be about as we wrap up here? Um, well, it might be about the specifics that we've decided upon for some of these mechanics we're discussing. But maybe even if we discuss those, we'll want to take a little break from the Junk Poets. Maybe we get to talk about the uh, idea of an approaching Kickstarter and what the preparations look like to present the game and have a physical version of the game potentially before the game's finished. (laughs) What an idea. I know. (laughs) They don't call it kickstart. It's not like, you know, I I can't think of a pun on Kickstarter for something that's already made. (laughs) Kickstarter isn't a store, right? It's for projects that still need to be made. So... It isn't actually breaking the rules. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but at the same time, you know, there's more and more expectation, especially if you're doing a project with a high funding goal or if you've done projects that you're going to present something every time that looks a little more finished and a little more finished. So, yeah, I'm game to talk about that next time. Let's do it. Least stressful topic in our lives, running Kickstarter. Relax, (laughs) kick back and talk about our livelihoods. So next time, I guess we will be talking about what it looks like to prepare for a role-playing game Kickstarter, which is something that we've done before. But every time it looks a little different, you learn new lessons. Gosh, you learn new lessons. You learn them so hard. (laughs) So (laughs) join us next time for that. (laughs) If you have thoughts about the travelers between the worlds, the way that the worlds can bleed into each other, the songs about slug festivals, you know, what gets you excited? Let us know. You can let us know by tweeting to us at designdocpod or emailing us at designdocpod at gmail.com. The Design Doc intro-outro theme was written by our friend, musician Pat King. Thanks, Pat. One Shot hosts many other great shows, like All My Fantasy Children. All My Fantasy Children is a character creation, world-building, and storytelling podcast powered by you. Each week, best friends Aaron and Jeff take a listener-submitted prompt and, using some of their favorite tabletop RPGs, create an original fantasy character. Along the way, they populate a shared universe one story at a time and share laughs, stories, and verbal hugs along the way. That's the most wholesome thing I've ever read. I want a verbal hug. That's so wholesome. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder I wonder if I asked if we could have a verbal hug from all my fantasy children. Yeah. If that is something that they would give. I feel like they're offering. I feel like they are, but like, I don't want to assume. So, you know. (laughs) We can give them a verbal request. Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) So we'll be back in two weeks. As always, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes.